Father, thank you for your love and grace. And each person that's here, would you please unlock your word to us, teach us about the depths and the riches and the, this great gift we have known as the prophet Isaiah. I'm asking in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so just another screenshot to show you that in that green and lime green band with the darker green, this is the political domain of Assyria. And it is sweeping south. And of course, as you move south, you're going to hit Damascus. And right north of that is going to be Jerusalem and Judah. And, and the whole idea is that we have a massive political threat. If we could flip over to a European map, we would say, here's Ukraine, here's Russia moving in on Ukraine. Same thing. Here's Judah, here's Israel. And coming from the north is this fierce nation known as Assyria. Okay, just want you to remind you of that, kind of get the big picture. All right, so by way of review, God had called Judah, uh, Judah, his, uh, Isaiah, to prophesy specifically to Israel, certainly in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, but Judah, and there's a real focus on Judah throughout the book. Judah was going through some times of revival and then times of rebellion, this back and forth kind of thing. And there was a great warning of Assyria. Egypt as well. And there was a tendency that, um, that Israel, Judah, wanted to go get political help from Israel. And it's called an alliance, right? And we're very, very familiar with alliances and access of power, axes of power. Well, they were doing the very same thing. Now, um, Isaiah prophesied during the reign of four kings beginning with Uzziah, and then the last king, Hezekiah. So I want to do a quick view of these kings. Uzziah is ranked as a good king, okay? He started at the age of 16. Can you imagine being a king at that age? Of course, we're projecting American concepts of adolescence onto that. But still, he's a young man. His father's murdered. All kinds of things had come out of that. But he sought God in the days of Zechariah. He rebuilt a particular region, Izion Geber. And uh, for trivia, just to get some global perspective, the first Olympic event was held at that time. Okay, well, Israel is struggling, you know, with religious devotion and political dynamics. Greece is is uh, practicing their Olympic Games at this time, first time. Pretty fascinating. Do you have a question, Jenna? Or... Okay. The second king is Jotham, and Jotham, uh, son of Uzziah. Okay. Good king. Ordered his ways before God, became king at 25, conquered the Ammonites, which was quite an event. But he encountered lots of opposition from Syria in the north and Israel as well. Yes. Okay. Uh, Use that. Mm-hmm. How did you know that stuff about his father? Is it in here? Or yeah. Is it, okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. And then um, let's see. Um, Ahaz. This is one bad dude. You remember Ahaz. This is a bad king, wicked king. He worshiped idols, led the nation in national level endorsement of idols you need to appreciate that now remember in this culture you don't separate church and state they were one and the same 
So if the king is endorsing idols, the worshiping of a particular pagan god, it is accepted as, as a national policy. So this is serious stuff. Isaiah counsels him. Um, Hezekiah, good king, considered one of the best of Jerusalem. He destroyed the bronze serpent that Moses had made. You remember that story in Numbers? Because, it, because they began to worship that. You know, icons, which is really interesting. Became king at 25. Israel falls to the Assyrians in his reign. He gets a disease and, and is approaching death. Begs God, prays. You should read Hezekiah's prayer for healing. And God gives him 15 more years to his life. Really a fascinating story. And so there's some scriptures. So, okay, those are, those are the kings. So, all right, let's turn to chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. And what I want to do is as we're going through Isaiah, it's not going to be word by word. It's too much. We'll be here for 10, 15 years. So <laughs> that'd be a long time. And uh, so I want to focus on the text of Scripture itself and, uh, and really pick up on some of the key, key aspects of the message. So Isaiah chapter 2, and the text says, The word which... Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills. And all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. Right out of the gate. Does anybody hear a hint of, the, of prophecy in this or that projects to the, the grand future, not just to Israel? Anybody hear something kind of sounds like? What's that? Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, it, it kind of sounds like it could possibly tie into Revelation. Absolutely, absolutely. The language of restoration, uh, the Garden of Eden restored. This kind of restoration language is going to be all through Isaiah. And the idea is that, that, that in the kingdom of God, Maddie, when you read Revelation, it says that in the holy city, there's a tree. And it says its leaves are for the healing of the nation. And, and that every month there's a new... There's a new um, harvest, new growth on this tree. What does that mean? Are nations going to come streaming into it to know healing and blessing? So really beautiful language to me. Um, verse, the middle of verse three. So come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us about his ways. I think... Uh, as I understand God's word, as I understand both the writings of the Old and the New Testament, that's kind of a principal objective of what church is about. We go to church to learn about the ways of God, learn about his, what his word says. If God says, I hate this, then we should hate that. If God says, I love this, then we should love this. And that we may walk in his paths. For the law of the Lord will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, okay? 
And this language is very, very famous. This is one of the most famous texts. And he, Jehovah, will judge between the nations and will mediate for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning knives. Agriculture will explode. It's going to be a fruitful time. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. Wow. Wouldn't it be an awesome day that we would not have to learn war? And the idea that, that we don't have to live in fear going to buy groceries or something like that. Uh, in this culture, though, they did. Um, it's a very, you know, as far as geography, Israel is just a small slice of real estate in the big scheme of things, and it's a battle of inches, a battle of yards, and a nation would always want to expand their borders. And so, um, a beautiful language that one day there will be no more war. Now, verse 5. Come, house of Jacob, and let's walk in the light of the Lord. It's positive, beautiful language. Come on. Let's walk with God. This is what he wants us to do. And then verse 6, it shifts. The prophet goes from talking to Israel, to Judah, and now he's talking about Yahweh, Jehovah. For you, Jehovah, have abandoned your people. Come, come on, let's go. Come on, Israel, let's walk in the ways of God. And then from God's perspective, but you guys have abandoned. But God has abandoned his people, the house of Jacob, why? Because they are filled with influences from the east. And they are soothsayers like the Philistines. They also strike bargains with their children, the children of foreigners. And their land has been filled with silver and gold. And there's no end to their treasuries. Their land has been filled with horses. And there's no end to the chariots. Their land has been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. Right? So he is prophesying from God's perspective against Israel, against Judah, because of idolatry. And they're using the gold, the silver, and all these things to make idols and to launch the pagan worship is what's going on. And remember, if the king endorses it, it's a national issue at this point. And then um, the land has been filled with idols. So the common person has been humbled. And the person of importance has been brought low. And then something that's really rough. But do not forgive them. That's hard. You know, don't we want God to rush in and forgive everybody? Right? We have these compassionate hearts. But I, Isaiah is saying, but don't forgive them. Don't do it. Don't do it. Right? So here's a hard word. Okay, I mentioned this on Sunday. Um, <clears throat> sometimes, to, to, to borrow kind of preacherismish thing, when we when we begin to engage in behaviors that do not please God, it's kind of like sitting at the kind of table that Jesus would flip, especially for religious people. Right? Um, and so the little, the little proverb, you know, don't sit at a table with Jesus. Flip. Okay, got it. But there's another idea, and that is 
is that we don't necessarily need to try to benefit the people that God is judging. Okay, and that's hard. It's really hard. Um, some people are under the judgment of God, and there are consequences that are very, very serious. Sometimes they might appear to be mild. Sometimes they're full-on life-threatening. And it's hard for us to see sometimes that there's judgment there. But judgment is a real thing, all right? And Isaiah, who, who mixes beautiful affirming language right in the middle of judgment language, it's really unusual, like a sweetness sour at the same time. I'll show you in a second. And he says, do not forgive them. In other words, it's like Isaiah is saying, these hardcore idol-worshiping people, they're not going to repent. So don't forgive and don't restore. This is an ouchy moment. Don't forgive. Don't restore the people who are not willing to repent. That's a tough line. You know, and sometimes we, um, you know, we Christians, especially in a, uh, a culture that's, that's uh, paranoid by wokeness, and, and, you know, if I say the hard thing, who am I going to offend? So you don't say anything at all. You know, and it's just the slow silencing of the voice of reason. Do you hear this? The slow silencing of the voice of reason, which is interesting because in that culture, curious people rocket to stardom. Do you know who one of those principal people is in our culture? The truth teller that has taken this nation and taken the West by storm and is now considered, quote unquote, one of the most significant voices in our culture on earth. You know who it is? Jordan Peterson. Because that guy will say the hard things that nobody wants to say. You should hear what he says about this woke idea and that, um, that, that all whites are bad. This kind of idea that white privilege is real. You should hear what Jordan Peterson does with white privilege. He deconstructs it in such a way that there's no, there's no coming back at it. You know? Okay, my point is, sometimes... We say the hard things. Sometimes we believe the hard things that people don't want to hear. Like, for example, do you think everybody goes to heaven and all roads lead to Rome and the Buddhists are going to get there and the Hindus are going to get there and the, the, you know, the Jews are going to get there and, and, and like all roads lead to Rome. Find your path. Do you really think it's true? It, okay, why? Why do you not believe that? Because specifically Jesus, yes, God. But Why what did Jesus say? What's that? Wide is the path to destruction. Wide is the path. And a whole lot of people find that wide path. But even more specifically, John 14, 6. Okay. There you go. There's That's the narrow gate. Right? One man, Jesus Christ. And so, you don't do the gate? <laughs> Sorry. There'll be no forgiveness for that one. Right? So this is serious stuff. And Isaiah is not afraid to call it what it is. God, don't forgive them. This is bad. This is really bad in Israel, okay? And then look at this. Now people are panicking. God's coming. Judgment's coming. Assyria's coming. The judging rod, the, the spoon <laughs> that God takes out to spank his kids with, you know, that thing. Um, enter the rocky place and hide in the dust. From Remember the salt and the sweet? Look at this. This is fascinating. Verse 10. Enter the rocky place. Hide. Run. Judgment's coming. Hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord 
and from the splendor of his majesty. Isn't it fascinating? That God would be both something terrifying and beautiful at the same time. In fact, that idea is so important to Isaiah. He says it three times. Verse 10. Try to hide from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Verse 19. People are trying to run away, get away from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. Verse uh, 21. People, again, are hiding and going away from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. When he arises to terrify the earth, which is, which is Hebrew language for saying judgment's coming. Take no account of, this is fascinating, take no account of man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? Why should man be esteemed? That's a great question. You want to try to go with it for just a little bit? Why should humans be esteemed? Open mic, what do you think? Why should humans be esteemed? Because they're created in God's image. Created in God's image. Very, very good, Manny. Anything else? Hmm? Yeah, in this judgment language, it's like, don't, don't esteem them. Yeah. It's a great question. So it's a big deal when someone creates it, is created in the image of God, rejects God. Fascinating, isn't it? That the very one who created you is the very one you reject. Can anybody recall Psalm 8? Does that ring a bell? Psalm 8. When I gaze into the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the sun, the moon, the stars that you have made, what is man? that you are mindful of him, that you've esteemed him and you've placed him even above the angels. Wow. God loves his creation. God loves people. And obviously that's very clear in the New Testament. But the people that rebel against their maker with hardness of heart and with no repentance in mind should not be esteemed. Um, Isaiah 3, God will remove leaders. You just walk down this line and it's all the people that would, would be uh, the, the, the game and the infrastructure that would run a nation, okay, or a city. They're all going to be moved. They're all going to be removed. And verse 4, 3, 4, I'm going to replace those leaders with boys. <laughs> boys are going to become leaders. And mischievous children will rule over them. Wow. And people will be oppressed, each one by the other, and each one by his neighbor, and the youth will assault the elder. Have you guys seen the footage, the video clips uh, of what's going on in New York? Old, like the old women, the, the old uh, Asian, I think Chinese woman or something, was just walking along, and youth come up and full on sucker punch her, and she is. Hits the ground. It's the yeah. Young people attacking the old in blunt force trauma for no reason at all. Yeah, it's odd. This is it's right out of Isaiah. People be oppressed, contemptible, and the contemptible person will assault 
The honored one? Yeah. And they're struggling to find leaders. Think there's panic in the nation and things are falling apart. The infrastructure is falling apart. Assyria's coming and it's getting bad. Okay? For Jerusalem, verse 8, has stumbled and Judah has fallen. Why? Because their speech and their actions are against the Lord and they rebel against his glorious presence. Again, when Isaiah, can you grab this idea? When Isaiah sees the Lord, it's beautiful and it's majestic and it's full of splendor. When an Israeli who's in idolatry sees the Lord, it's terrifying. Can you appreciate that? When you're into idolatry and paganism and you are full on against the Lord, when he shows up, you're scared to death. But when you love him with all your heart and you walk in his ways and you learn his about him when you see him it's beautiful there's splendor there's majesty it's a glorious thing no should be afraid of him it's the ones who are rebelling against him who should be afraid of him um verse 9 3 9 the expression of their faces testifies against against them they're caught red-handed they're caught and they display their sin like sodom they do not even conceal it. Woe to them. By the way, in Hebrew, woe, uh, it, it's really a very, very strong term. And the idea is if you're on, you're on I-40, you're out on, and you come up on a wreck and it's really bad and there's vehicles smashed and you go, oh, whoa, nobody could survive that kind of an impact. And you go, oh, ow, that's bad. That's what woe means in Hebrew. This is bad. This thing is really bad. Look at the last part of verse 9. For they have done evil to themselves. Wow. Say to the righteous that it will go well for them. For they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked. It will go badly for them. For what he deserves will be done to him. My people. Their oppressors treat them violently, and women rule over them. <gasps> Uh-oh, women ruling over us. Okay, what does that mean? My people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your path. A couple of really important things. Why would that be uh, uh, offensive or kind of judgment language, women ruling over men? Why would that be a problem? What do you think? It's judgment language. In other words, uh, Jenna, men are failing to be spiritual leaders. Men are moral, spiritual failures on a national level. This is not one guy stumbling in the dark by himself. This is a national level problem, and women are having to step in. This is bad. This is a nation under judgment. Um, this idea that, you know, for the righteous person, it's going to go well. For the wicked person, it's going to go badly. Uh, Galatians, can everybody turn to Galatians 6? Galatians 6, I want you to see this. Um, Galatians 6, and I want you to look at 
verses 7 and 8. Um, can someone read that from, does anybody have ESV? Can you read ESV? Oh, I'm sorry. Anybody ESV? <laughs> Go ahead and look that up. Um, does anyone have NIV? Um, can you read that then, Sloan? Um, I'm sorry, chapter 6, Galatians 6, 7 and 8. That is so good. What do you have, Jen? Uh, Jen? Um, ESV? Uh-huh. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Um, ESV. Um, Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Let the one who has taught the world, uh, the word, share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who says to the Spirit, Yeah, yeah. That's the very language here of Isaiah 3. See, the righteous, it will go well with you. To the wicked, it's going to go badly with you. For what he deserves, it will be done for him. That is the language. Um, verse 13, chapter 3, Isaiah 3. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who devoured the vineyard. The goods stolen from the poor are in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and oppressing the face of the poor, declares the Lord of armies? Do you hear any New Testament echo there? Anything there? This is right out of the teaching of Jesus. Remember the vineyard? What's the parable of the vineyard? The um, rich man had a vineyard. And he, he leaves, but he puts all these men in charge of the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And what happens? Uh, they go out to kill his sons. So he, he sends servants to get produce and profit from the vineyard. And what do they do with the servants? Not yet. They beat him up. Oh, yeah. Yell at him and beat him up. Send him back. Empty-handed. Sends more servants. And eventually the ruler, the owner says, Ah, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Don't honor my son. And so they, he sends his son. Son gets to the vineyard. And the vineyard keepers that were in charge said, Oh, this is the son. Let's kill the son. And then the vineyard will be ours. Is that not the story of Jesus? God sending his son? So what's the vineyard? Or who's the vineyard? Israel. And the leaders who are ruining the vineyard are the religious leaders of Israel. The Sadokim, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers. Yeah. And now he describes some things about women that are really interesting because this is one of those moments when you get kind of a cultural backdrop about what women would be like, you know. Not a lot of it. Um, uh, this is chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters are, of Zion are haughty 
and walk with their heads held high and seductive eyes. They go along with mincing steps and jingling the anklets on their feet. The Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs. Ooh, that sounds horrible. And the Lord will make their foreheads bare. On that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornament. Listen, they're describing what, a, what an ideal woman would look like, is what Isaiah is doing. Um, anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festive robes, outer garments, shawls, purses, papyrus garments, undergarments, headbands, and veils. All going to be red. Now it will come about that instead of balsa oils, and that, by the way, this is not the original doTERRA on the balsam ones. I just want you to know that. Thank you, Sloan. Mm-hmm. Now come about that instead of the balsam oil, there will be a stench. Instead of a belt, a robe, instead of well-set hair, a plucked out scalp, instead of fine clothes, a robe of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty, your men will fall by the sword, your mighty ones in battle, and her gates will lament and mourn, and she will sit deserted on the ground. The unwanted women, once beautiful, now sitting in the dirt as the Assyrian army dominates. Now, what is the the significance of a woman and the loss of her hair? Why is that important? Because her hair is a covering from her head. Okay. And? Is it called the crowning glory? Yeah, you're quoting 1 Corinthians 11.15. You alluded to it, Maddie, where it says that a woman's hair is her glory. Yeah. Yeah. In Proverbs, it's interesting. The glory of an old man is his gray hair. The glory of a young man is his strength. The glory of his son is his father. The glory of an old old people are grandchildren. It's all in Proverbs. And then it pops over 1 Corinthians 11. The glory of a woman is her hair. Okay. And so when you say that a woman had loss of hair, plucked out, scabs forming on the scalp because of wound, etc., um, you're talking about a woman becoming ugly is what you're talking about, and shame. Now remember, what is the gender of, of the city of Jerusalem? Hmm? Female. female, always in Israeli culture, always. Yeah, the city is, the, is a female. And Jerusalem, my bride, you know, the daughters of Zion, all these things. Um, when, you, when you talk about this kind of judgment, the beauty of the garments is gone, the beauty of the hair is gone. It's not really necessarily talking specifically about a woman, specifically. It's talking about Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem, judged in horrible ways. Now, by the way, does this happen in war and famine? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you bet it happens. Yeah, it's happened multiple times to Israel. So, um, all right. Wow. Intense. There's a big thing I want you to take away tonight, and there's a lot here. And that's why we're going to do this pretty intense rocket through Isaiah 
so that we don't spend you know multiple years here. Um, when you are a pagan in idolatry and you're blinded by the idols that you worship and that you made with your own fingers, okay, you're, and that's blinding, you're doing harm to yourself. I want you to lock on that idea. And when God confronts you, it's terrifying. But when you walk with Jesus and you love Yahweh, Jehovah, and you know his ways and you serve him, you go behold the majesty and the splendor and the wonder and the magnificent of my God. And it ain't something that's scary. It's beautiful. Yeah. Now God's heart, God's desire is that the nations flood the beautiful bride, Jerusalem, and come and, and know the grace and bounty of the Lord. All right. Is there something you see that, that you can, hey, man, Chris, we, we got to talk about this from Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 3. Anything you want to mention? How do we pull this into our world today? The state of the world makes it easier to understand. Say that again. The state of the world today makes it easier to understand. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, our, our, even in America, you can see things actually playing out like this in our nation. So, um, okay, anything Anything else that you see that we can pull into our world today? It sounds like a description. What's that? It sounds like a description of our world. Oh, doesn't it though? Yeah. Topsy turvy, upside down. When we look at the next the next few chapters, it's amazing. There's some amazing things in Isaiah. I love it. Anybody else? You know, I, uh, I still reflect so fondly on that big agape feast we had. And for me, one of the things that was like, man, this is awesome, this is so cool, is that I think Tammy and Galen, and I'm not sure how many others, and you perhaps helped, got those, those glass bottles and filled them with juice. Of course, if we were truly Israeli, it would have been wine. And there was this abundance of grape juice, you know, this abundant thing. And it's like, oh my gosh. This is the imagery that Paul was getting at, and that I believe Jesus is getting at, in that when we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's abundant. It's not little tiny plastic cups. In, you know, in my tradition, in the Southern Baptist tradition I was in for many, many years, this is huge compared to the little cup. I mean, this is, whoa, that's a lot, of, a lot of juice there, that little tiny thing. And, of course, when you're a kid and you want to have fun in church, 
you take that little thing and you suck it in, and then it gets that kind of time for you life. You know, and why not have a little fun in a Baptist church? You know, it was a hard sermon. So, little bitty things, but there's abundance, you know, and I just love that. So, when we, we take the Lord's Supper tonight, can we see this in terms as, as uh, Dale, this is the narrow gate. This is it, the narrow gate, Jesus, that leads us to this abundant gift. So, Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Promissory language, covenantal language, new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Next Wednesday, we're going to talk about already the branch of the Lord of Yehovah. It's going to be beautiful. Let me pray. We'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for the abundance of love and grace that you pour out on those who accept your son. And what a horrible thing that those who reject you, reject your son, will know your judgment. To them you will be a terror, but to us you are majestic and full of splendor. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. Please draw the lost to your, to your church so they can hear the gospel, please. Thank you, Father, for your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.